Boy, sometimes I feel like I could just um, have us exegete the lyrics of the songs we sing. I was sitting down there and thinking, well, they're, it's pretty much all in there, over the last few, several songs you sang. And uh, I actually did do that once. I actually had something prepared in a service, and I threw it out and walked through, uh, I think it was, Oh, Wondrous Love Is This. I think that's what, what it was. Um, so today... Um, I'm going to be sticking pretty close to the Romans 5 passage. So that's on page 2 of your handout. All of our passages today have to do with water at some point, and water maybe especially in the Middle East, but I think everywhere, is a life-giving thing, and therefore a life-giving image. I mean, just think of for yourself of your favorite body of water, a lake, is it a river or a stream you've been to, an ocean, maybe even just it's drinking water, a fountain. We probably all have them. We probably all have an image of a favorite water or body of water or place. And water is an important image in the scriptures for God himself. So I'm thinking of um, Jeremiah 2.13 when he talks about the evils that his people, the Israelites, have committed. And he said, they've committed two evils, God says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's what he calls himself. So the first sin is they've forsaken me. They've forsaken living water. They've turned away the very thing that was meant to give them life. And then he says, this is the second one, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they've tried to become their own irrigation. And he says, that's the other mistake. But it's so interesting to me that it's couched in forms of uh, disobeying God is in the form of rejecting life, rejecting the thing that gives you life. And if the commands have ever felt arbitrary in Scripture to you or oppressive, you just need to realize that the commands are a vision of the good life. They are the offer of living water to us. And so not only is God frequently associated with water, but the Holy Spirit is frequently in the Scriptures associated with the pouring out of that water. And and it is in, in 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 the... with that word pour, that kind of generous dispensing. So we get in Joel 2.28, for instance, the prophecy, I will pour out my spirit. And so you need to hear water in that, the implicit metaphor of water in that verb. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. There will be a fount, and I'll return this letter, there will be a fount of, of seeing the good. The Holy Spirit allows us to see the good, the true, and the beautiful visions of it. And that brings us to our Romans 5 passage today, where Paul says, in the midst of our suffering, we can hope in the glory of God because the love of God has been poured out on us. You see the icon of the Holy Trinity up there? I think I've used this before, I just can't seem to get away from it. It's an old uh, Russian icon by an artist named Rublev. 
And um, it would be fun if we were in a classroom to discuss who is who up there, which, which is which, and why is which, which they are. But I'll just tell you, we don't have time. <laughs> the scholarly consensus is that Jesus is in the middle. He is, uh, and the, the, color, the colors don't do well in, in, the, in this kind of a room with all the light and, and uh, with my old PowerPoint image. Uh, but he is uh, in a kind of robe. He's in the middle, in, the, in a robe of kind of reddish-brown, both the kind of earthiness, Jesus incarnate, embody, coming to earth, and both the kind of purplish of royalty. Uh, he's also got his two fingers here that commonly in religious art, when it comes to Jesus, represent fully divine, fully human. Behind him is a tree. Last week when I asked a class what that was, they said, it's a lizard. No, it's a, it's a tree. <laughs> I hadn't seen the lizard before. I don't know. <laughs> it's like if you squint, you can see the spaceship. I never saw that either. You know, that pain. To Jesus' left, your right, is the Holy Spirit, commonly understood to be the Holy Spirit, dressed in that kind of verdant green, suggesting new life, and that's, of course, what the Holy Spirit does. He, and, of course, water brings new life poured out upon us. And then on Jesus' right, your left, is the Father, whose robe is a kind of a, I don't know, a kind of Shekinah glory gold. And, of course, they all have the blue, which represent they're all of the same substance. They're God. We are not them. It was thought that this icon was brought out during Pentecost in the calendar of the Russian church because it represents, perhaps, this moment when Christ has ascended to the Father after the resurrection, and he's now asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit. So you'll see Jesus kind of almost with his posture talking to God, and you see the Holy Spirit, his head bowed, but almost in readiness to go, to be sent. And you have some great doctrines potentially revealed here. You have the Father who sent the Son and has justified it. So Paul refers to this, of course, in our Romans 5 passage, therefore we have been justified through faith, which simply means that God has taken every resistance we've had to drinking living water in the past, every resistance we've had in the present, every resistance we will have in the future, and he said, you know, I will not hold this against you. You have peace with me. Though you have rejected me in the past and you will reject living water in the future, you have peace through the atonement of my son. So that's the doctrine of justification. And then you have here, in a moment, it's going to be, if, if this were a, a movie, uh, the moment of regeneration. The Holy Spirit's going to be sent down into the hearts of believers or those who accept, and the Holy Spirit is going to create a new affection. You know, before we didn't want to study the Scriptures, but having somehow come to Christ, we've been regenerated, it's like, now the Scripture's kind of interesting. Their life, can, before we didn't want to hang out with other Christians, maybe, but now it's like, I want fellowship. Before we didn't want to go to church, but now I want to go to church. The Holy Spirit actually regenerates, creates a kind of bonding to, the God, to God in us. That's a doctrine of regeneration. We are given a new heart. We are new creatures. We have a new affectionate direction through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And finally, there's a the doctrine of adoption, because we know from Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts that we might cry, What? Abba, Father. So it turns out that the criminal court of justification was really an adoption court. 
and that this happy family, our parents are happy in their love for one another, but now has become our family. We are not the same as them in substance, but we have been adopted by the Trinity. And so Paul spends much of Romans talking about these doctrines of justification, regeneration, adoption, saying things like, you know, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. All things will work together for the good. He's telling this to both Jews and Gentiles. But of course, he couldn't avoid the problem of suffering. He couldn't avoid the question, well, if God loves us so much, and if we're adopted, and if we're held, what about suffering? And there would have been some serious suffering in the first century church. You know, it wouldn't be just like cockroaches and dead batteries, you know. You know, disease would have been kind of a constant threat. Plagues would have wiped out populations. The rich and powerful could pretty much easily exploit the poor with impunity. Stuff we take for granted, water and food, could suddenly be scarce. And then, of course, there would have been persecution against this upstart, hybrid Jewish faith. And so Paul knew that as he's talking about all of the goodness of being now adopted by God and having our sins wiped away and having peace with God, standing in the grace of God, as he says in Romans 2, he knew that some people were going, but what about this suffering? And so in Romans, in your passage here, Paul says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, and then verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Well, I want to, he runs by that pretty fast <laughs> in about three verses. But I want us to, in the remaining time, just to kind of slow things down and spread them out a little bit. And ask, how do we find the love and goodness of God in suffering? And I know I'm talking to three groups of people out there. Some of you have experienced tremendous suffering. And this is going to feel a little pedantic even, a little teacherly, because you know the full truth. In fact, you should probably be up here. I've had some suffering, actually. But I know a lot of you have had a lot. So there's that one group, and so maybe you can just, you know, follow along, go, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's right. I remember that from my... And you'll have a thick knowledge of it. You know, I'm kind of going to be doing a motorcycle ride through this, but you're going to go, oh, it's thicker than that, but yeah. So another group of you who are... Um, aren't, aren't really experiencing a lot of suffering right now, and thank God. <laughs> and so you're just going to kind of archive this message. Like, okay, I'm going to archive this, and when I need it, pull it out of the back pocket. And... But there's a second group of you that are kind of in it right now. You're in it. And so it, this may help a little bit about what's happening. How can I find God in the suffering? So to explain this, I kind of want to tell a little story of our suffering. Um, and uh, on, the, uh, on the next slide, I want to suggest that we all wake up in the morning seeking goods. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. There are certain goods that we want, that we seek, kind of natural goods. Meaningful work gets us out of bed in the morning. 
We go into the day hoping we can experience the goodness of our work. And if it's not meaningful to us, at least gainful. We get a check. We go in, we wake up, get out of bed, seeking a check. It could be the joy of seeing our families flourish that day. If we're blessed with children or, or we chose to have children, seeing them kind of grow and experience life, that's a good that gets us out of bed in the morning. Could be the warmth and intimacy of human connection. The people you'll get to see that day, have coffee with, have lunch with, talk with. That's a natural good that we seek each day we get up and we seek it. It could be just experiencing the beautiful. You may get to drive Coast Highway on your way to work. For many, for several years, I got to do that. I got three tickets. Because when it goes to Crystal Cove through Morro Bay and into North Laguna, it, it drops 20 miles per hour. And if you're enjoying beauty, you just don't even think about it. <laughs> Two of the times it was the same cop within three days. <laughs> mm -hmm. He said, you're having a bad week. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it's beauty that gets us up, the beauty of nature, the beauty of art. People who are depressed can't get up in the morning. They don't see a good. They don't have a vision of the good. They can't get up. I mean, literally can't get out of bed. Nothing appears to be good. And so this is good. We were designed to move toward the goods. And in fact, our loves and desires for these kind of, you know, I mean, the holding thing would work here too, you know. We kind of hold these, these uh, goods and desires. And we, the, the term would be kind of psychologically we attach to them. And again, I'm just describing what is normal and good. We attach to things through our love and desire. We kind of hold them. And we seek Joy. We can imagine if I get this, I will be joyful. If it's a good that's kind of out there and we're moving toward it, we can imagine joy. And that's all good, natural and good. But you know what a trial is or suffering is? And you'll see it here. A suffering's like a cloud that comes in. Boy, you can't see it very well, but there's a cloud there with the word suffering in it. And it's usually much brighter in our vision than that. It potentially blocks momentarily, we hope momentarily, our vision of the thing we're seeking. We now can't see it so well. Or if we can see it well, we're worried we're not going to be able to get through the cloud to get it. A trial temporarily throws in doubt, will I get this good? Will I get this job that's meaningful? Will my children flourish? Will I recover if health is a good? A trial is often in the form of sickness. So this cloud comes in and suddenly the, the good that we imagined and got us out of the bed in the morning, now there is a question mark. It's in jeopardy. Sickness, again, is probably the most common cloud that comes in. My oldest daughter went off to college she, um, gosh, you know, going off to college, you're filled with visions of good. Lots of friends, potentially a new place, finding a career, finding a significant other was often part of the quest, right? Boy, college is filled potentially with visions of the good for those who can afford to attend. But, you know, she got real sick for most of those years. And it was... It would, the cloud was there. It was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish. I don't know if I'm going to be able to um, 
work as hard and do as well. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to go out with them tonight, where they're going. And so a cloud is that thing that comes between the goods that we hold and, and attach to. And we usually know how tightly we are holding to those by our anxiety and fear. In the next slide. Usually there's a kind of anxiety and fear that's a calibrator. The more we attach to something that suddenly comes into jeopardy, the higher our anxiety and fear go. So something I hold very tightly, I'm just gonna be able to tell, wow, that is a deep treasure of mine because now my anxiety is high. What if I don't get that? It's a kind of thermometer of our treasures. So when Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In a trial, we know where our heart is suddenly. We know how deeply we've attached to it on the fear and anxiety scale. It shows us our degree of attachment. It, show, it gives us self-knowledge. And again, attachment's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, our health is a good good. <laughs> we should want our health. We should want meaningful or gainful work. We should want a home to protect us and give us a certain amount of space to flourish in. We should want friends and flourishing family. So we may find, yeah, I'm super anxious. This, is, this good that I hold is now in jeopardy and we'll discover the degree of our attachment by the degree of our anxiety now that's suddenly in doubt. And you know what that's gonna do? That's going to be the first stage in a new openness to God. Because now you'll get a chance to say, well, Lord, I'm gonna let you open up and show me what is in my heart. I'm gonna let you show me the treasures of my heart. And so what trials do is they kind of rock us back. You know, we're in full stride toward the goods. The trial is a wall, bam. If you've ever actually walked into a screen or a glass, boom. And you know, in that rocking back, we have a moment to go, Lord, is this something I should really be holding this tightly to? You know, we're in Lent. And Lent is that practice of asking, what am I holding too tightly to? And what do I need to loosen? Or, alternately, in Lent, we can say, what am I not holding tightly to enough? And do I need to kind of tighten my grip on Jesus? But it's a moment when we, the trial rocks us back, and we say, well, Lord, is this a good good? And many times it'll be, yes, this is a good good. I should keep moving toward this. I should keep moving toward health. I should keep moving toward employment. I should keep moving toward relationships. But, you know, sometimes you'll go, you know, now that I rock back a little bit, this is not a good good that I'm seeking. Or at least in the attachment to it. I think to myself, how much unnecessary suffering could I avoid if I had a smaller ego? <laughs> how much of my suffering comes from me holding tightly to the respect I must have or the universal approval I must have? or the um, relative kind of success I much have, have relative to other people over other people? How much of my suffering is me taking in and holding too tightly to this? And so as I hit this trial, I may say, gosh, Lord, I suddenly realize how deep a treasure this is in my heart, and I need to loosen up. I need to, this is not a good good, at least to the extent that I am gripping it. And so there we begin our openness to letting God speak to us in trials. 
Are these good goods that we are pursuing? Well, many times they are. But are they things to which we need to practice disciplines of detachment, again, signified by Lent? Well, that is kind of the first step. In the next slide, you'll see that Paul, well, even, even before that, uh, I'll say there's, there's two temptations, though, when we hit this wall. And one is gonna be the temptation of just fortitude. Now, again, a certain amount of fortitude is good if it's a good good. We wanna keep moving toward it. If it's a good good, we say, you know, I'm just gonna keep moving through this cloud. I'm gonna keep trying to understand how this good can be achieved, because it's a good one. And by the way, you know, we, as we seek this, we can use all of our natural reason, our problem-solving abilities, all the wisdom we gain from others, I mean, these are all fair game as we say, Lord, this is a good good, I'm gonna keep moving through this and I'm gonna use every allowable skill and understanding you've given me. But you know, at some point, you and I might run out of resources. (laughs) We might suddenly realize, I can't change the situation right now. This trial is too big for me. There's nothing I can do. I mean, you look to me like a bunch of educated and competent people just looking out. But you know what educated and competent people have? They have an illusion of control. (laughs) They have an illusion of control. And so we may find ourselves in a trial in which, you know, there's not much more I can do. So what do you do when there's not much more you can do? It's a good good. You've used your resources. You're moving into it. Well, there'll be two temptations here. One will be, you know, I am going to get it no matter what. I am going to get this good no matter what. Yeah, I can't make the markets change for my job, but I can cook the books. I can't ensure my success, but I can blame other people for the failure. I can't rise to the top, but I can gossip and manipulate my way to it. So there'll be the temptation to go around in the next slide, to actually not use what God has given us to move through, but to go around another way. To go outside of his moral will to get the good we want. I'll get it no matter what. If I have to knock some people over in the process, well, so be it. That'll be one temptation. The other temptation on the next slide will be despair. The despair of God ever coming. So, two temptations when your resources run out, fortitude no matter what, even if people get hurt, despair that God will ever come would be the other one. It's the two sides of people's personality, right? Some people are just like, I can do this, I'll move through and I'm gonna get it no matter what. Your bull in the china shop. Other people have, they they lose hope. I can't get this, and they fall into despair. People will lose their faith in trials. People will lose their faith. They not only despair of the good coming, they despair of God coming. And so they lose their faith. So what can Paul possibly mean in our passage by suffering produces perseverance? What is the kind of perseverance or endurance he's suggesting? Well, again, there is the Nike way, just do it, no matter who gets hurt. And again, it's legitimate to use your your problem-solving capabilities and your reason and everything to move through if it's a good good. But what do we do when we've done everything we can and we can't change our health and we can't change the markets or we can't get this person to change their mind or we can't get this person to have peace with us? 
Well, you know what? We have to wait for God's way. When all the ways seem exhausted, we say, Lord, you're gonna have to provide a way. You're gonna have to provide a way. Somebody once asked Bill Bright, the head of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, founder and head, the uh, late Bill Bright, if he had uh, what it was like and all the problems of leading an organization as big as Campus Crusade for Christ, he said, I don't have any problems. And <laughs> the interviewer was like, come on, you got problems. Uh, and a nonprofit that big, you got problems. And he goes, no, they're, they're God's problems. I have issues, but they're God's problems. He's gotta, he's gotta provide a way. You know, I, I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, we are very different, Bill and I. <laughs> it sounds a little glib, but his son was interviewed. And they asked him, you know, your father said this, which sounds a little, he didn't say glib, but same idea. Is this, was this really true? And of course, we can always count on our children to out us. And the son said, no, that's true. He realized when he hit a problem, he said this is God's problem. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he's not doing everything he can, using those arrows of moving forward, using the skills and, and problem-solving abilities and the research and the help from others. He just means I'm not willing to go outside those, outside God's will. And if I'm stuck, well, God is going to have to provide a way. So it turns out that endurance is not just gutting it out. And that would be pagan endurance. Excuse me if there's any non-believers in the audience, but, and, and that's a fortitude, and that's good to have fortitude and move forward, but in Christian terms, you know what endurance is? It's waiting on God. It's doing everything you can, and then when you get in that place, say, Lord, you are going to have to provide a way. It's not toughness, it's faith. So that's one thing we do. Endurance here, suffering can produce a waiting on God for his way. It can produce faith. You know, and the second thing it can do? It can show us that there might even be a greater good than the good we are seeking. And so it surprised me when I looked at verse two here. Paul says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, and then he says, we also glory in our sufferings in verse three. What is it to glory in our sufferings? Well, you know, the image that Paul uses in this passage of standing in the grace of God is an imperial image. He says that we now have access to the grace of God, which the image that they were supposed to see was be able to stand in the court of a Caesar, to have access to the favor of a Caesar. And if you've ever been close to people who are famous and powerful, and if you're in their favor, you kind of feel famous and powerful. <laughs> Irrationally, of course. <laughs> Some of you may know that I'm related to a little bit of Hollywood royalty. And uh, we would go places with this person and uh, we'd walk into places. Like I remember we walked into an arcade in Florida to play some games. And the person behind the register was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's you. And I said, well, I didn't. No, I didn't. It wasn't me. <laughs> and they said, oh my gosh, no one famous ever comes in here. I'm gonna, and I'm gonna go tell my friends, you know. There was a sense that the glory that she saw in front of her was actually now part of her, her story. Now, of course, there's something called vainglory. <laughs> and that's vainglory. Uh, present relatives accepted. Um, sometimes when we see 
supposed glory, we scratch in it a little bit and it's not. It's a little empty. But this is not vainglory. God's is not vainglory. So what do we do when our resources have run out and we're waiting on him? Well, we just gaze on Jesus. We just gaze on Jesus. We let him realize, we let ourselves realize that he holds us and that we hold him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says the Holy Spirit's been sent so that we have a kind of knowledge that amounts to looking into the face of Jesus Christ, which is glorious. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Now we see dimly in a mirror, but we will soon see face to face. We will be known even as we know And we're told that this vision of God will actually result in us sharing in the glory. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled faces, even now, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding it, staring into the eyes of God, as it were, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's amazing. That as we look at the glory of God in these times, as we stare at Jesus, which is a kind of way of saying, as we just focus our attention on God, his truth, his beauty, his goodness, it is actually being reproduced in us. Not in exactly the way that he is, but we are participating in glory. The theologians will call this the beatific vision that we really all seek even though we don't know it. Beatific just means happy. (laughs) The happy vision that somehow begins to change in us. I was speaking to a mother the other day whose daughter was dating a non-believer, and he's a good guy, apparently. I mean, he's self-disciplined, and he's respectful, and he has good fortitude, and all these things, and the daughter was saying, you know, he really tries hard to be good. He really does. But then this is what she said of her dad, who was a believer. She said, yeah, but my dad is good. <laughs> my boyfriend tries hard to be good. He's got kind of good moral fortitude. But she reflected on her dad, and she says, my dad kind of just is good. Now, there may be some romanticization there. And <laughs> but to the degree that it's true, what she may be discovering is that her dad has something that can't be manufactured by mere fortitude. Something has been reflected in his character, and this is what Paul means by character. It is not our good moral efforts. That's a kind of character. This is the character that can only be received by relationship with God, gazing on the face of Jesus, and the peace, the joy, the love that somehow through the Holy Spirit becomes a part of us where people go, that's a little different. It's, ladies and gentlemen, that's glory. That's the glory of God. So, where is God in our suffering? Well, if we must suffer, and suffering is not a good in and of itself, but if we must suffer, we let him open our heart to show us what we love. If it's something we're holding too tightly to, it's not a good good, we say, Lord, loosen my grip. If it's a good good, we say, Lord, I will continue. I will not despair. I will move ahead with all the gifts you've given me. 
And then when our finitude runs out, when all our resources run out, we wait on God. We say, God, you are gonna have to provide a way. And many of you have stories of the ways that God has provided. That's endurance. It's not gutting it out. It's waiting for God. And as we wait for God, we look more deeply into Jesus' face and we let his beauty and goodness illuminate and saturate our circumstances. We do this with others in worship, outside in nature, in prayer, through the scriptures. We gaze in the face of Jesus and as we do so, we will receive something that will never be taken away from us, communion with God. We become beautiful. We receive glory. And so as Paul says, there is a good even greater than the goods we seek. So for a moment now, just where are you? Are you in that first group of folks who can look back on suffering and say, Lord, show me what you did in that time? Are you in another group that says, well, thank you, Lord, that there's not a lot of suffering now? Well, just thank him for that. It's just cockroaches and bad, dead batteries. And if you're in the midst of it, say, Lord, I open to the good goods you offer, but to the great good to which you invite me. In Jesus' name.